The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. You should get used to that because we're going to be here for a little while. Romans chapter 12, we began our study of this new section in Romans 12, verses 9 to 21 last week, and we, we said that this section of this chapter is all about how the gospel impacts relationships, how the gospel transforms how we relate to one another. And the assumption that we have as we embark upon this section is that the gospel fundamentally and drastically changes how we treat one another. When the mercy of God, when the kindness of God invades your heart, when the, when the glory of Christ really captivates your affections, your relationships will never be the same. And what we said as we began this series last week, we said that the the primary moral standard for Christians now is love. That the, the primary way that we interact with people, whether inside the church or outside the church or inside of our families or outside of our families, it really doesn't matter. The, the primary moral standard for Christians now is love. We might say it this, this way, that our, our identity now as Christians is defined by loving relationships. It didn't used to be that way. Think back about what your life was like before you came to Christ. Think about what your relationships were before you came to Christ. Think about what defined and characterized how you treated each other and other people before you came to Christ. And and now the gospel changes all of that. It frees us from our enslavement to ourselves. It, It opens us up to the actual ability and desire to love other people. That's what the gospel does. It does that because God's gracious, loving treatment of us is the basis for our treatment of others. The reason we love other people now is because God has loved us, and the reason we forgive other people is because God has forgiven us, and the reason we treat people graciously is because God has been exceedingly gracious to us, and the reason we treat people with kindness is because God has been exceedingly kind with us. And so we're in a section where Paul is telling us what gospel-shaped friendships look like, and gospel-shaped marriages, and gospel-shaped parenting, and gospel-shaped relationships with the people sitting around you, and gospel-shaped relationships with people outside of the church. Here's Paul's description of how the gospel revolutionizes our relationships. I'd like you to follow along once again as I read these 13 verses. Starting in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We said last week that this section of Romans chapter 12 is entirely different than anything we've seen so far in this book. It is not just a long treatise or a doctrinal statement about something. It is, it is a list of short, brief, compact statements that, that come at us in a, in a succession, rapid-fire succession. There's one right after the other, this volley of short, sharp admonitions. You get out of one and you're right back into the next one. And Paul is bringing them right before us quickly, pointedly, and forcefully, 25 of them. In these 13 verses. And these 25 injunctions really frame up for us what God's will for us is in how we relate to one another. Look back up in chapter 12, verse 2, and you remember what Paul said there. We saw this a number of weeks ago. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And he describes for us there, the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect, but he doesn't tell us what the will of God is because now he fleshes it out for us. So, beloved, this is what God expects of you. This is what God requires of you. This is what God demands of you. These are your marching orders and my marching orders when it comes to how we treat other people. It's not at all surprising to me that he gives this long list because Paul knows something about human nature. He knows that every single one of us have someone or some people in our life who bother us, who are difficult. Every single one of you sitting here can most likely think of someone right now in your life who is a struggle for you. Lord willing, it's not your spouse, but perhaps that's the case. Perhaps it's your children. Perhaps that's that unbelieving neighbor or coworker or family member. Perhaps it's someone sitting in this very room, someone that you see and you avoid and someone that you know that there's misunderstandings and hurt feelings and wrong things have taken place between the two of you and now you don't even speak together. Paul says that has no place in the life of the church. And so Paul's going to get in our kitchens. Paul's going to meddle. He's going to step on your toes. It's going to hurt a little bit. But that's what the gospel does. The gospel makes Christ and unity within the church far more important than your own personal offenses. And so last week we began looking at 25, 25 evidences of gospel-shaped relationships that really provide for us a prescription 
for healthy relationships. That, that's what this list is. It, it's a prescription. And if you're ill and you're sick and there are unhealthy things in your life, you go to the doctor and you get a prescription. And, and that's exactly what this is. This is a, a, a list which provides for us a prescription for healthy relationships. And, and this list tells us what body life here at Maranatha Bible Church ought to be like. This is not just for some people out there or other people who need to apply. This is for us. This is for our church. This is for how we relate to one another and how we interact with one another. And so we began looking at the first one last week. We only got to one. I promise you we'll get to two today. We're making progress. We'll get to two today. We looked last week at the first one in verse 9, a sincere love. This is the first evidence of gospel-shaped relationships is a sincere Love. He begins verse 9 by saying, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy, literally without a mask. The, the way you interact with fellow believers and other people outside the church as well, whether it's family or friends or neighbors, whatever, the, the way you interact with them, Paul says, has to be without hypocrisy, sincere, genuine, pure, from the heart. It's not a sham love. It's not a superficial love. It's not a pretentious love. It's not a fake love. It's not a duplicitous love. It's not a love where you say, you know, I really love you, but inside your heart is just burning with bitterness against that person. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a love here that is genuine and real and authentic and comes from the heart because you've experienced the gospel and now you extend that same love to people in your life. This is sincere love. And really what Paul does in the rest of this section is he, he gives us another category or list of, of, of issues related to this one category. In other words, we might say that the, the examples that Paul gives us in the rest of this chapter really flesh out what it means to love each other. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks working through these. And so I want to embark upon a study of numbers two and three with you this morning. Number two is a holy hatred. Not only must there be a sincere love for the brethren, there, there must also be, number two, a holy hatred. He said, that, that seems kind of shocking. How, how can you, in the one hand, command us to love and at the same time command us to hate? That's exactly what Paul does. It's really remarkable, and it seems odd to us, it seems shocking to us, it sounds almost contradictory and inconsistent for Paul to do this. It seems so odd for him on the one hand to say you must be marked by love and at the same time be marked by a certain hatred, but that's what he does, and it should not surprise us at all because love and hatred are not incompatible at all. They're not incompatible because to love properly demands a corresponding hatred. That's very critical for us to understand that a love, a proper love, a genuine love, a pure love necessarily demands a corresponding hatred because love is not indiscriminate. Love does not love everything. Real love does not make you love every single thing. Real love makes you discriminating and discerning and it makes you certain, uh, the ability to, to, to decide between what is good and what is not good. Those who love what is good, what is beneficial, what is honorable, must also hate what is evil. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. He, he is telling you as believers, and me as a believer, that when we love others, we must also hate certain things. Not people, 
Don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying you hate people. He's saying there must be certain things that you hate because to truly love someone means that you're committed to their highest good and that necessarily requires a hatred of every evil that would detract from their highest good. So we must be known not only by what we love, but by what we hate. I I used to think as a young believer, I, I, I wanted to be known simply for the things I was for, not the things that I was against. And I think there's some truth in that and some wisdom in that. And and yet, Paul's going to tell us here in this second principle that, yes, you must be known for certain things that you're for, but you must also be known for certain things that you are against. It's the mark of true love. And it's found here in this middle phrase in verse 9, abhor what is evil. Or another way of saying it is to hate what is evil. And Paul is very, very adamant here. He is using perhaps the strongest Greek word that he could use to communicate the absolute abhorrence that you and I need to have with that which is evil. He's using a word here that's never been used elsewhere in the Greek New Testament. It's called a hapax legomena. It's a word you can try at lunch today. A hapax legomena, which is a way of saying it's the only place this word occurs in the New Testament. The only place. This is the only occurrence of this one word for abhor here in verse 9. And he could have used a number of other words. He's used two of them at least already in Romans up to this point. In chapter 9, he used a word for hatred that's uh, known as meseo, the, the Greek word meseo. Romans 7.15 is the same word, meseo, and he used another word back in Romans 2, verse 4, kataphroneo, which means to despise. So he's had at least two verbs that he could have worked from or used to communicate the absolute hatred that we ought to have towards all that is evil, but he doesn't use either of them. He pulls in a word that's not ever used in the New Testament other than here, strongest, most intense form of of hatred that Paul could communicate, he employs right here. Apostugeo, to hate, to despise, to have a strong like for someone or something implying repulsion and a desire for avoidance, to hate something, literally to shudder at its thought. Have you ever hated something so much you shuddered? See those kids when they eat broccoli for the first time? You know, they shudder. They hate it so bad. That's the idea. This is not just mild displeasure. This is not just a mere dislike of something. This is an absolute abhorrence of it. To detest it. To loathe it. To have a vehement dislike of it, to be disgusted with something. And Paul is not commanding us here to just avoid evil. He's actually commanding us here to loathe it, to hate it, and to despise it with every fabric of our being. Where there is love, there must also be a hatred of all that is evil. Let me say it this way. Evil must be anathema to every single believer. You must be known not only for your great love for the Lord and your great love for other people, you must also be known for your hatred and your abhorrence over anything that is evil. You must recoil at it. You must pull back from it. You must shudder 
when you come face to face with evil in this world and in your own heart. True believers abhor sin. True believers hate all that is evil because they realize that evil is a slippery slope and once you head down that road, it will suck you in and it will draw you in. This is the seriousness of it. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me show you a very similar section where, where Paul does something very similar here that he does in Romans chapter 12. Towards the end of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, he, he gives us a similar list like he does in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 5, even verse 14, he begins to give us a, a list of commands and instructions and demands of us. Verse 15, don't pay back evil with evil, always seek for that which is good for another Verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, and everything give thanks. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances. He's doing the same thing here. He's just listing one after the other, one bullet statement after another. And look at verse 21. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now, my Bible has a little note by that word form. Maybe yours does as well. And in the margin, it says, or appearance. Abstain from every appearance of evil. It's not just that we hate evil and we, we run from specific expressions of it. It's that we hate even the appearance of evil. Even if something looks like it's evil or sinful, we run from it. That's what he's talking about. That's how serious this is. We run, we shudder, we avoid it. Uh, listen, I, I've, I've, I've sat with people and I've had people ask me, Todd, particularly in premarital counseling, Todd, how close to the line can we get? You know what they're asking before they get married. How, how close can we get? How, how, how close can you get to that line before we've crossed over? And, and let me just say, you're asking the wrong question. You're actually asking the wrong question because it's not how close you can get to sin. It's how far away you can be. It's how holy you can be. It's how, how fast you can run away from all that is evil that should concern your heart. Not how close you can get to the line without getting burned. This is the command that Paul gives us. Abhor what is evil. Abstain from everything that is evil, even the appearance of it. Let's go back to Romans 12, but on your way, make your stop in Ephesians chapter 5. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. We see something very similar. And I want you to notice that in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul brings together the issue or the idea of love and hating all that is evil. He, he brings that connection right very clear here in these opening verses of Ephesians chapter 5. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you as an offering and a sacrifice of, to God as a fragrant aroma. See, there it is. Walk in love. Your relationships ought to be dominated by love. They ought to be dominated by care and service to one another. You ought to be known for your love for other people. And what does that mean? Look at verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. You see how hard a line Paul draws here? 
in your love towards one another, you also have to make sure that there's not even a hint, a thought of anything that would be impure in those relationships. Go back to Romans 13. Go back to Romans 12, but stop once at Romans 13 because he says something very similar here. Romans 13, verse 11. He says, do this knowing the time, verse 11, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than we first believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly, here it is, as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. You see the, the line here? You see the standard? If you're a believer, you walk by light. You don't walk by those things. You don't be known by those things. What do you do? Verse 14, you put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you woken up this morning and put on Christ? See, you're all wearing clothes. Thank you. We appreciate that. Have you put on Christ? Have you, have you put him on in the sense that you want to, to know him and to walk with him? And what does that mean when you do that? Verse 14, and therefore you make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You see, when Christ becomes so precious to you and you actually robe yourself with him, the result is going to be you make no provision for the flesh. And that word provision is strategon, strategon. Where we get our word strategy. You make no strategy, no plan, no tactics, no, no forethought. There's not a, 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 an idea here that you're going to do anything to fulfill your lusts. No plans, no strategies. Go back to Romans 12. You're, you're almost there. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 9, abhor what is evil. Beloved, this is a zero-tolerance policy with evil. A zero-tolerance policy with all that is evil. You don't flirt with it. You don't experiment with it. You don't toe the line. You don't tamper with it. You don't play with it. Why? Because sin is so destructive that it will suck you in. That's how serious this is. And so we ought to shudder at the thought of this. We ought to be ripped to the core of the thought of dishonoring the Lord and engaging in any kind of evil or sin that would bring reproach upon the name of Christ. And I want to take a moment just to flesh this out with you because I'm concerned. I'm concerned for the church in America today. The result of pragmatism has been a loss of holy hatred. The, 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 the fruit of pragmatism in America has been this. You cater to the masses. You make church feel good to everybody. You preach a message that will bring the, the crowds in. There's no talk about evil. There's no talk about sin. There's no talk about holiness. There's little talk about abhorring what is evil because that offends people. And so we're growing up in an, in an era and churches today in America where we don't want to hear this message and we need to hear it. You need to hear it and I need to hear it because if we're honest, listen, if we're honest, every single one of us secretly 
likes in our flesh to cherish what is evil. Let's just admit it. There's something attractive about the forbidden. You know that. The sign says, wet paint, don't touch. What do you do? You touch because it feels good to disobey. It feels good to step over the line. There's something in us that likes to compromise in the little things. It likes to to flirt with evil. And you need to understand that evil is a slippery slope. It will suck you in and it will destroy you. And so we need to really grasp what Paul is saying here. And to do that, I, I want to walk with you through what God hates. I want to give you a list of some things that God hates. We just looked at Ephesians chapter 5, which said, be imitators of God. And one of the ways we need to imitate God is we need to love what God loves. But have you thought about the fact that there are things God hates? And if we're going to be an imitator of God, then we must hate the very things that God hates. So what does God hate? There are a number of times in Scripture where the word hate or abomination or detestable is used in reference to things that God hates. So I want to just give you a list. They're not on the slides, so you can write these down if you want. We do that to keep you engaged so you actually listen. So here they are, six of them, six things God hates. Number one, God hates idolatry. God hates idolatry. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25 says, The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire, and you shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it to yourselves, or you will be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Idolatry is an abomination to the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 44 Verses 2 through 4 says this, God says, You yourselves have seen all the calamity that I brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah, and behold, this day they are in ruins and no one lives in them because of their wickedness which they committed so as to provoke me to anger by continuing to burn sacrifices and to serve other gods whom they had not known, neither they nor you nor your fathers. Yet I sent you all my servants, the prophets, again, saying, Oh, do not Do this abominable thing which I hate. God hates idolatry. He hates idols because they distract people from the proper worship of God. God hates idolatry because they make false statements about Him. God hates idolatry because they set up some image or something in your heart that is not God and it makes you think that it's going to satisfy you like God does and it doesn't. That's idolatry. One writer says the most degrading thing we can do as human beings is to live our lives in pursuit of empty gods. You say, we don't bow down to idols, statues. Okay, maybe not, but what about images in your heart? Ezekiel 14 talks about idols of the heart. An idol of the heart is anything that captivates your heart and your affections more than God. An idol of the heart is anything you looked to give you what only God can give you. An idol of the heart is anything that you believe will bring you satisfaction and meaning and value and significance and the security in your life that you are looking for. That's an idol. It doesn't have to be a statue in some shrine somewhere. An idol is anything that you look for to find meaning and significance and satisfaction in this life. God hates it. 
because He created you to find your satisfaction in Him. Do you have any idols? Idols which God abhors, which you also must abhor? Number two, God hates sexual immorality. He hates sexual immorality. God created sex to be a wedding gift from a husband to a wife to be celebrated on their wedding day and thereafter. He hates all perversions of it. Listen to Leviticus 18.22. He hates homosexuality. You shall not lie with a man as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. He hates bestiality. Leviticus 18, verse 23. You shall not defile an animal, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. He hates those who cross-dress. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. He hates divorce, unbiblical divorce, which propagates adultery. Malachi 2, 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. God hates sexual immorality in all forms and all ways and all perversions. Ephesians 5, 5 says, no immoral or impure person or covetous man, which is an idolater, who has an, will have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. He hates it. He hates sexual sin, period. Do you have any in your life? God hates it. And I ask you, do you hate it like God hates it? Third, God hates injustice. He hates idolatry. He hates sexual immorality. He hates all forms of injustice. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, here's, here it is, and hands that shed innocent blood. Proverbs 17, verse 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. God hates injustice. Have you taken advantage of anyone? Lying on your taxes? Cheating someone out of something that is theirs? God will not tolerate anything beneath his high bar of justice. He hates it. Do you? Number four, God hates deceit. He hates deceit. He hates idolatry. He hates sexual immorality. He hates injustice. He hates deceit, deceptive speech. Proverbs 6, again, I encourage you today, if you have some time, to look at Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. He lists for us six things there that God hates. One of those things is a lying tongue and a false witness. God hates those things. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 17, let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another and do not love perjury for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. God hates lying. God hates speech which conceals the truth. God hates any misrepresentation of what is true. God hates deceptive 
speech because those false words reveal a heart in rebellion to God. So are your words truthful? If they're deceptive and lying, God hates it, and so should we. Number five, God hates pride. He hates pride. Proverbs 6, again, six things which the Lord hates. The first on the list is He hates haughty eyes. Prideful people, arrogant people, He hates it. Proverbs 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate, God says. Proverbs 16, verse 5 says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. God hates pride. Is there any pride in your life? Of course there is. Every one of us have pride in our life. Where is it? Where is the pride in your life? Where, where are the things where in your, in your heart you are secretly boasting about your accomplishments or the things that you're feeling really good about that you've done? Where is it? God hates it. Because all that you are is a gift of God's grace to you. Last, God hates evil thoughts. He hates evil thoughts. Proverbs 6, verse 18 says, The Lord hates a heart that devises wicked plans and feet that run rapidly to evil. Proverbs 15, verse 26 says, Evil plans are an abomination to the Lord. God hates evil thoughts. He looks beyond the action. He looks to what proceeds the action, what, what gives way to the action. He, he looks at what, what is behind the action, and he, he sees in the heart of those people wicked thinking and evil reasoning. And when God sees that, he says, I hate that. I hate evil thoughts. Well, there's many other things that God hates, but God has a holy revulsion against all that is opposed to his holy perfections. And when we think about abstaining from evil and abhorring all that is evil, we need to have fixed firmly in our minds the things that God hates because we need to love what he loves and we need to hate what he hates. But I told you that there's something within us. There's something within us that likes to cross the line. I read a fascinating article this week by Tim Challies. As innocent as a snake. I encourage you to read it if you have an opportunity. He says this, there is something deep within the human heart, even the regenerate human heart, that enjoys evil. There's something within us that is drawn, almost magnetized at times, toward those things that are improper and even outright vile. At times, each of us wants to see, taste, touch, or experience what God forbids. We want to watch things that glorify evil. We want to participate in what is off limits. We want to experience what God says is unfitting. And one of the responsibilities of every Christian is to train ourselves to fill our hearts and minds with that which is good and empty them of all that is evil. He goes on to say, as Christians, we need to be aware of evil, aware of its existence, its shape, its contours, yet without developing an obsession with it, we need to know enough about evil to discern and resist it, yet without stooping to plug our minds full of it, end quote. Do you do that? 
Do you have a holy revulsion to all that is evil? See, in order to get to that point, we need to hate it more than we love it. And beloved, when you're in the moment of temptation, you've got a decision to make. And I've got a decision to make. In that moment, am I going to love what is evil more than I love what is holy and good and righteous? Because our fleshly heart is telling us, ooh, that will satisfy, that will provide you some temporary enjoyment, and you've got to understand in that moment, your affections need to win over your desire for that which is unholy. I've had many conversations with men about pornography over the years, many, too, more than, too many than I can count. And in those conversations, one of the things I always want to try and do is paint this picture of pornography as sugar-coated poison. It's sugar-coated poison. Oh, it looks sweet, and it looks tasty, and it looks wonderful, and it looks like it's going to satisfy, and I'm going to, I'm going to take a good bite of it, and it's going to really satisfy me for a time. And you don't understand, when you do, it will destroy you because it's poison. And that's how you need to view all that is evil in your life as sugar-coated poison. Well, Tim Challies in this article, he, he, he turns the screws a little tighter. Let me, let me read a little bit more to you. In the realm of morality, he says this, I've seen people so immerse themselves into pop culture and entertainment that they come to imitate and resemble the people that they admire. They began with a desire to watch things that were just a little less innocent than they were accustomed to and found that rather than satisfying their appetites, this merely whetted them. They did so from a desire to express Christian freedom or a desire to be culturally informed and relevant. They advanced from film to film and rating to rating until nothing was too repulsive, nothing was off limits. The innocence that had once protected them gave way to a knowledge that harmed or even destroyed them, and we witnessed this descent. And we who witnessed this descent saw how it changed them and how it harmed them. He's exactly right. That rather than satisfying our appetites, when you cross the line into evil, your appetites are now wedded for more evil. You say, Todd, this sounds like legalism. Is this just fundamentalism? Is this just you kind of giving us some, no, 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 this is not legalism. This is the heart of a believer who genuinely wants to honor Christ with everything in them and abstain and abhor all that is evil in our life. And so, let me put the screws to all of us this morning. What do you watch? What movies do you watch when no one's around? And it's just you and the, I was going to say VCR, but they don't have those anymore. It's just you and Netflix. What are you watching? Three in the morning when it's you alone in a dark room and you can't sleep, and the computer's on, what goes in the Google search box? What music is on your iPod? Beloved, we need to understand that the more willingly we associate with evil, the more it will drag us down to its level. It starts small, and it starts subtly, and it begins with small compromises to a point where eventually evil sucks you in. 
You say, what does this have to do with relationships? I thought this was a series on relationships. Let me tell you this. It has everything to do with relationships. Let me give you some examples. Husbands, are you abhorring all that is evil in your marriage? Are you abhorring all bitterness in your heart towards your wife when it creeps in? Are you abhorring those harsh words that are on the tip of your tongue and sometimes come out? Do you abhor that? Do you abhor what you expose your wife to when it comes to your entertainment? See, when you, when you truly love your wife, you're not going to expose her to what that which is evil. Wives, are you guarding against any evil that may creep in your heart towards your husband? Unkind words, disrespect in your heart, anything that could creep in your heart that could be the evil that begins to get a foothold in your life, your marriage? Parents, kids, parents, are, are, are you guarding what you're modeling for your kids? Your choices, your words, your actions, the things that you watch, the movies that they know you're watching, the things that they know you're listening to? Are you very careful about what your kids are watching you see and listen to because a, a, follow, a, a leader's liberty is a follower's license? What you choose to do, they will do to another degree. Kids, you abhor evil when it comes to your relationship with your parents. When they're correcting you and teaching you and instructing you, do you have an unteachable, rebellious, prideful spirit in those moments? How about how you treat one another in this room? Are you abhorring all kinds of evil in how we relate to one another? Are you abhorring the kind of things that can creep into your heart towards fellow believers, whether it's jealousy or bitterness or frustration or an unwillingness to reconcile with someone who hurts you or a, a desire to hold a grudge because it, it feels better to hold a grudge than it does to reconcile? How about those unbelievers in your life, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, family members? Are you abhorring evil in those relationships so you can be a light and a witness and a testimony so that you can make the gospel attractive to them? This has everything to do with relationships. So Paul says you need to have a holy hatred, a strong disaffection for all that is evil. Well, thirdly, and we'll end with this one in just a moment, number three is a righteous adherence a righteous adherence. Not only must we have a sincere love and a holy hatred, we must also have a, a righteous adherence. And here's, here's the flip side to abhorring what is evil. You must also cling to what is good. Verse 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be attached to what is good. Hold fast to that which is good. Notice how he ends this entire section. Go down to verse 21. He says something very similar. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So on the one hand, we as believers, we hate all that is evil. We run from it. On the other hand, we cling to and hold fast to all that is good. Now notice that word in verse 9, cling or hold fast or hold tight to. It's a word that means glue. 
Glue yourself to it. Cement yourself to it. Stick yourself to it like epoxy. Bind yourself to all that is good and holy and righteous and pure and honoring to the Lord. You say, what is good? It's whatever's found in God's Word. It's His will that is good and perfect and acceptable. It's, it's everything contained in Scripture. It's Philippians 4.8. Think on what is right and true and pure and lovely and good repute. If there's anything of excellence and anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Dwell on these things. Those are the good things that ought to define us. Go over to just for a moment. Colossians chapter 3. Let me show you very quickly here. Colossians chapter 3, what, verses 1 to 3. Here's a similar injunction for us to, to make sure that we are following and holding fast to the things that are good. Look at Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where's your mind? Are you setting your affections, are you setting your mind on the things that are above rather than the things that are upon this earth? What's good? It's whatever honors the Lord. It's whatever is going to seek the love and the benefit and the blessing and the spiritual growth of your husband, your wife, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your children, your parents. So what does this have to do with relationships? Everything. Your relationships ought to be marked by what is good and honoring to the Lord as opposed to what is defined by this world. So are we doing this? How are we doing as a church? How are you doing in your family? How are you doing in your relationships? If someone were to survey them, if someone were to come and evaluate them, if someone were to come and, and kind of look from the outside and, and examine what's going on as they perceive your interactions with fellow believers, maybe when you don't think anyone's looking, would they say, there's a person who is abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good, or a person who is clinging to what is evil and abhorring what is good? Pray with me. Father. These are pointed truths. Lord, these are instructions that will make us feel uncomfortable. These are admonitions, Father, that will get down to the nitty-gritty of our lives. They'll test us in our entertainment choices. They'll, they'll test us in our words and our speech and in our interactions with other people. They will put to the test the things that we cherish. It will reveal what's really in our hearts. Lord, our earnest prayer and desire is that we would, we would practice what Paul teaches here. That, that above all, our relationships would be defined by that which honors you and pleases you, would be defined by what is holy would be defined by what is your good and acceptable and perfect will. So, Lord, expose in us 
sinful areas, expose in us the, the parts of our heart that still secretly desire that which is sinful. Lord, reveal that to us. Lead us in the way everlasting so that we can be a holy people for your honor and glory. Lord, where there are relationships strained here this morning, do a work. Where, where evil and sin has taken root in, in relationships between husband, wife, or fellow believers, Lord, do a work. We plead with you and trust you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.